Have you ever noticed how as you grow older in life, you tend to reflect back on key incidents and key experiences from your past? The more of life we live, the more tendency we have to become nostalgic. People in the Bible were no different. They were human. They were people like you and like me. Therefore, it is not surprising to see the Apostle Peter late in his life using an expression that was very meaningful to him that came from his early days in life. You see, when Peter was a young man, the Lord Jesus called him to be a follower. Actually, there were a couple occasions when Jesus called Peter to be a follower. The first is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Let's turn there by way of introduction this morning. So the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth Gospel record, we'll begin here and look at one other passage before we turn to our text in 1 Peter. John, chapter 1. This chapter records the early call of the disciples, and John is the only gospel writer to tell us about this early phase of our Lord's ministry. Several of the Lord's disciples were originally disciples of John the Baptizer, and eventually he pointed them to Jesus to follow him. That's where we pick up the story in verse 40. John 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him. Now that John would be John the baptizer. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. You can't help but love Andrew. He probably spent his entire life being known as Simon Peter's brother. That's the way he's referred to in verse 40. Simon Peter's brother. But in spite of that, Andrew wanted to tell his brother about Jesus, knowing full well that as soon as Simon Peter entered the group, he'd end up running it. But that didn't matter to Andrew. He was more concerned with the effectiveness of the ministry than who got the credit. Leonard Bernstein was once asked, what is the hardest instrument to play? He responded without hesitation, second fiddle. Andrew was willing to play second fiddle. He's the type of person who's the backbone of every ministry. And God knows that it sometimes takes an Andrew to reach a Peter. That's exactly what Andrew did. He brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, this would be Simon, Simon Peter, when he looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, or John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. In this very first encounter, Jesus reveals his plan to transform Simon to Peter. Remember now, Cephas and Peter are the exact same name. They they both mean stone or rock. Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is Greek, but it's the same name. Jesus planned to take this man named Simon and transform him into a Cephas or a Peter, 
a stone, a solid man. And that is exactly what Jesus did over the next three and a half years. You see, beloved, it's not what you are that's important. It's not even what you have been that's important. The issue is what you are willing to become. Jesus can transform anyone if there's a willingness. And we see that beautifully illustrated in the life of Simon Peter. This was the first time Peter met Jesus, and Jesus called Peter to become a rock. There was a second time Jesus called Peter, and that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. So let's go look at that occasion over to the first Gospel record, Matthew, chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Matthew tells us, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now understand that at this point, Andrew, Peter, James, and John had already been converted, saved, whatever term you want. They had already become followers of Jesus. They had been followers of Jesus for at least a year by this time. But here Jesus calls them to leave their nets, to leave their secular work to follow him exclusively because he had plans for their lives. This was the second time Jesus called Peter. Peter surely remembered these two calls from the Lord Jesus, and he remembered how his life was changed forever. Maybe that's why Peter uses the word called so often in his first letter. In 1 Peter 1.15, he tells us we are called to be holy. In 1 Peter 2.9, he tells us that we are called out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light. In 1 Peter 2.21, he tells us that we are called to suffer and follow Christ's example of meekness. In 1 Peter 3.9, he tells us that we are called to inherit a blessing. In 1 Peter 5.10, he tells us that we are called to God's eternal glory. The Lord has called us, called us to himself, and that call should have a radical impact in our lives. That's what we see in our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1. So let's turn there together as we resume our consideration of this Letter penned by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be verses 17 through 21, but I want to back up and begin reading in verse 13, although we covered these verses last Lord's Day, but to have the full paragraph in our minds, let's begin reading in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind... Be sober 
and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As you can see from reading through this passage, the Apostle Peter places a heavy emphasis on our conduct our behavior as Christians. This was an extremely important issue in Peter's heart and in his mind, and therefore in his letter. In fact, catch this statistic. First Peter uses the Greek word for lifestyle almost as many times as the rest of the New Testament put together. He uses the word in chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 16, as well as a couple times in 2 Peter. That's how important this issue was to Peter, and it should be the same to us. Beloved, our conduct as Christians is extremely important. You have heard many times, and it's true, that you are the only Bible some people ever read. And let me assure you that people are reading your life every single day. People watch how you act. People notice how you react. People notice, they listen to how you speak. They watch how you respond. People are watching you, even if they don't say they are watching you. Peter was well aware of that reality, which is why he says so much to us in this letter about our conduct or our behavior or our lifestyle. His letter is the only New Testament letter that has the word Christian in it. And that word means little Christ or imitators of Christ, followers of Christ. That's what we're called to be. We are called to be imitators of Christ or little Christs. Every one of us in this room who names the name of Christ, every one of us in this room who claims to be a Christian is a daily advertisement of the Lord Jesus. Every one of us. To say it another way, you are a witness for Christ. You don't have a choice. You are a witness for Christ. The only issue is the kind of witness you are. Sometimes people will seek to challenge us, uh, challenge our hearts in a good way to be a witness for Christ, and they will make statements like this. Well, you need to determine that you are going to be a witness at work. 
Or you need to determine that you're going to be a witness for Christ at school. Or you need to determine you're going to be a witness for Christ in your neighborhood or in your home or on your sports team. That's really not the accurate way to say it. Because you don't really determine if you will be a witness for Christ or not. You are a witness. The only issue is the kind of witness you are. That's a sobering responsibility. And that is why Peter has so much to say about it in his letter. We saw in the last message that we are exhorted to gird up the loins of our minds, to be sober, to rest our hope fully on the coming of Christ, to be different than the people around us, and to be holy in all our conduct. That's the message of verses 13 through 16, which we saw last Lord's Day. And it would be easy for us to assume, well, that, that says it all. I mean, well, what else can be said? What, else, what more can be said? Gird up the loins of your mind, get your act together, be sober, rest your hope fully on the coming of Christ, be different than people around you who don't know Christ, be holy in all your conduct. And we might assume that Peter would stop there, but Peter isn't finished exhorting us because the exhortation continues in verse 17. Notice how Peter states it in verse 17. He says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. The first thing to notice about this verse is that Peter is addressing Christians. But he says it in a unique way. He says, if you call on the Father, or if you call on Him as Father. That's just another way to describe a Christian because only a genuine child of God can address God as Father. The Bible is very clear, abundantly clear, that God is not the Father of all mankind. God is the creator of all of mankind, the life giver to all of mankind. But He is only the Father of those who have personally received His Son as their own Lord and Savior. Maybe you've heard people talk about, and there are many songs, I've heard this in many songs, uh, people express the idea of the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of mankind, especially that last part of the statement. The brotherhood of mankind is talked about a lot in society. That is not a true concept biblically. It's not accurate. God is not the father of all of mankind, and all people on planet earth are not brothers and sisters. The biblical position is that God is the Father of those who have received Christ, and all those who have received Christ are brothers, or brothers and sisters. So Peter's phrase here in verse 17 about addressing God as Father is simply another way to refer to true Christians. It is also interesting to note that Peter reminds his readers that God is an impartial judge. Did you notice that in verse 17? This character trait of God is something that most American Christians don't appreciate. Because our country probably has fewer instances of injustice than many other places around the world. Now, I'm not saying that injustice is not a part of our society. Certainly it is. It's in every society because societies are made up of sinners, fallen people. But our country probably has fewer instances of injustice than many other places around the world. 
The more I travel around the world, the more I am amazed at how blatant and grievous injustice is in so many cultures in this world. In many places around the world, the police are the most feared people in all of society because they are so corrupt, so evil, so wicked. Bribery is a way of life. Injustice and partiality are rampant in this world, which is one of the reasons why the Bible emphasizes this specific character trait of God. God is not unjust, and God is not partial. That is, he doesn't play favorites, and he doesn't show partiality. The Lord had to remind Samuel of this when he said, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, Moses said, The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. And are you ready for this? Who shows no partiality. That's an interesting verse, is it not? Moses trying to extol the majesty of God and the greatness of God, the awesomeness of God, says he is a God who shows no partiality. Even Jesus' enemies knew him to be no respecter of persons. In Matthew twenty-two sixteen, they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care for people. What they're saying is, it doesn't matter to you if people are high in society, low in society, what their status is. You don't care about any of that. For you do not regard the person of men. The last phrase literally reads this way. You do not look at the face of men. In other words, you don't treat people according to externals. You don't look at someone's face and then determine how you're going to treat that person. Jesus, we know you don't do that. You never do that. Because God is no respecter of persons. Peter finally caught hold of this truth. It was tough for him. It was tough for him as such a devout Jew because he was really biased against Gentiles, prejudiced against Gentiles, looked down on Gentiles. But Acts 10.34 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He got it. God is a God of perfect justice and equity. There's no partiality with him. His character is flawless And he is altogether trustworthy. And Peter says here in verse 17, If we call him our father, we ought to conduct ourselves properly. That's why Peter adds the last phrase, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning in fear. Now that begs the question, why would Peter say that we should conduct ourselves in fear? The answer is this. Because there is a healthy kind of fear of God, which is, the, which is why the Bible often says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. When people don't fear God, they do some really stupid things. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Reverence for God is the foundation of all proper living. Not only that, we should fear the consequences of sin and disobedience. 
God is a God of grace. We know that. We, we understand that. We appreciate that. But he is also righteous. And we should never presume upon his grace to think that it's no big deal if we choose to sin. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You're not going to mock God. You're not going to get away with anything. For whatever you sow, that you will also reap. So there is a proper place for fear in the Christian life. Now, let me hasten to add, there is an unhealthy kind of paralyzing fear that is not good. So that's not what we're talking about. There is an unhealthy kind of paralyzing fear that is not good, not biblical. But there is a good kind of fear, reverence, awe, respect for who God is. Therefore, Peter encourages us to conduct ourselves in fear. And when he gives this exhortation, he uses a fascinating term to describe our time here on earth. He uses a term that emphasizes the fact that our time here on the earth is only a brief time because this world is not our home. He uses a word that describes us as pilgrims or sojourners or strangers. The New International Version really brings this out, but none of the other English translations I consulted really bring out that nuance like the NIV does. Peter states the same thing over in chapter 2, verse 11, where he addresses his readers as sojourners and pilgrims. Beloved, we are strangers in this world, aliens, exiles. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is there. Our Savior is there. Our inheritance is there. Our reward is there. Our destiny is there. That's what is behind the word that Peter uses here in verse 17 to describe our time here on this earth. It is a very, very brief time. James 4.14 says, For what is your life? It is even a vapor. Life often seems long to us at various times, especially if we're going through difficult times or hard times. Life can seem long, but when compared to eternity, our lives are merely vapors. Just go outside on a cold day and breathe out. When you do, you can see your breath for just a moment. I did that this morning, right at sunrise, just walking around the neighborhood, going through my notes. I thought, well, I'm going to see if I can see my I knew I was going to be preaching. I'm going to see if I see my breath. I hope none of the neighbors are watching. And I just started breathing out really hard to see if I could see my breath as an illustration of what James says. Your life is just a vapor. Compared to eternity, life is so short. We're only sojourners here on planet Earth because we're, we're just passing through. We don't belong to this world because we have been purchased for heaven. So Peter adds verse 18. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible or perishable things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Peter reminds his readers and us that we have been redeemed. We don't belong to this world, that's verse 17, and we don't even belong to ourselves, that's verse 18. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. We now belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought us, He ransomed us, He redeemed us. 
And the word Peter uses here means to buy and set free. Jesus bought us and set us free. From what did Jesus buy us? Well, actually, there are several correct answers to that question. And one of them is what Peter mentions right here in this verse. We were bought out of our old, futile way of life. We were released from the empty and aimless life we received from our human ancestors or we received in our humanness. That is a powerful picture. Think about what Peter is saying here. If you have unsaved friends or family members, then then you have seen what Peter is talking about here. So many unsaved people go from one experience to the next experience, one relationship to the next relationship. They're always looking for meaning, always looking for fulfillment. And Peter says it's just empty and aimless. It's futile. And sometimes it takes years and years for someone to realize that. And sadly, sometimes some never do. It's just empty. It's futile. It's aimless. It's vain. Christ saved us from that kind of life. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. God saves us from our old lives, and he makes us new in Christ. That's what Peter is describing here. Jesus bought us, and when he did, he didn't buy us with something that is temporary or perishable like silver or gold. He bought us with his blood. So Peter adds verse 19, but you weren't bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I love the fact that Peter uses the word precious in this verse to refer to the blood of Christ. It's as if he can't refer to the blood of the Lord Jesus without putting some kind of adjective with the word to describe it. We were redeemed with the blood of Christ, and that blood is precious. It is precious because he is precious. It is priceless. It's valuable. The blood is precious, valuable, and priceless because Jesus is precious, valuable, and priceless. And the salvation he accomplished is precious, valuable, and priceless. Now, understand what Peter is saying here and what he is not saying. It's not that there was anything unique about the blood of Jesus because it was normal human blood. I emphasize this point because there are some Christians who teach that the blood of Jesus is some kind of unique, divine, eternal blood. And that's what gives it the value. They say the blood of Jesus was not human blood, but really the divine blood of God. A number of years ago, there was an article in Sword of the Lord magazine that promoted this issue. In the article, the author quotes Dr. M. R. DeHaan's book, The Chemistry of the Blood, which says this, and I quote, Every drop of blood which flowed in Jesus' body is still in existence and is just as fresh as it was when it flowed from his wounded brow and hands and feet and side. He continues, Perhaps there is a golden chalice in heaven where every drop of the precious blood is still in existence, just as pure, just as potent, just as fresh as 2,000 years ago, end quote. The article 
written by Dr. Curtis Hudson, adds this comment, quote, After Christ had made the atonement, he arose from the tomb, and then as the eternal high priest ascended into heaven to present the blood in the Holy of Holies where God dwells, that blood is there today pleading and prevailing for us, end quote. The article goes on to put down those who disagree with that view and, and uh, really criticize anyone who would disagree with that view. Now, those who hold to, to such a view certainly mean well, but their good intentions are misguided by making statements like that that can't be supported from Scripture. You see, beloved, if Jesus' blood was the blood of God and not his human blood, then Jesus wasn't truly a man, and now you've destroyed the incarnation. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook in the same. In other words, Jesus became a man, fully, truly human, with human skin, human hair, human toenails, human blood, human bones, so that he could die for the human race. The, the blood of Jesus was human blood, and it was precious because he is precious. It is medically, scripturally, and theologically wrong to see the blood of Jesus as anything other than his own blood. The contrast here in this passage is not between perishable silver and gold and imperishable blood. Peter clearly says exactly what he wants to say. He is comparing perishable silver and gold with precious blood. He is emphasizing the value of the blood, not the inherent nature of it. Silver and gold, because it is corruptible, has no eternal value. The blood of Jesus isn't eternal. It's the value of what Jesus did that's eternal. That's why Peter says we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And then he adds this phrase, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That is clearly, undeniably, a reference to the Passover lamb that the Jewish people had to sacrifice each year. Immediately when Peter's Jewish audience read that phrase, the whole imagery would have popped into their minds immediately. They knew the routine. God instructed them to choose a lamb that was without blemish and without spot. It had to be flawless because it was a picture of the ultimate lamb of God, the Lord Jesus himself. This imagery would have been very powerful and very meaningful to Peter's Jewish readers. This had been a part of their culture for centuries, a part of their lives they knew what it meant to choose a flawless Passover lamb and to bring it into the home for several days to become attached to it, just as God had told them all the way back in the book of Exodus. You go take a little lamb, flawless, spotless, without blemish, bring it into your home so you'll grow to love it and become attached to it, and then you kill it. Sounds cruel. Sounds mean. But it was actually one of the most powerful object lessons God could give people of what it cost him to sacrifice his son. The, the Jewish people knew what it meant to have to kill that lamb and shed its blood. So Peter draws on that picture by this statement. 
The Apostle Paul made a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where he wrote, For indeed Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. And this sacrifice was in the eternal plan of God. So Peter adds, verse 20, he says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest or revealed in these last times for you. Some translations use the word foreordained in this verse. Others use the word chosen. Others use the word foreknown. But they're all saying the same thing, namely this. The death of Jesus was planned in eternity past. The death of Jesus has been the eternal plan of God. This was something that Peter was compelled to emphasize in his ministry to Jewish people. When he was preaching in Acts 2 about the crucifixion, he said of Jesus in verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Peter made it clear that God pre-planned the crucifixion of Jesus. It was no accident. Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstances. He himself said in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. In John 19, 10 and 11, John tells us that during the trial of Jesus, when he was on trial, Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Pilate was frustrated because Jesus was silent, wasn't answering. He says, don't you know I have this power? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. In other words, Pilate, you're you're not as powerful as you think you are. The only reason you are going to be a part of this play is because God has given you this role in the play. Jesus wasn't a victim of circumstances. God pre-planned the crucifixion of Christ. In Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. This This is emphasized over and over again in Scripture, especially in passages where the audience is Jewish because of this reason. Jewish people, still to this day, but especially in the first century, Jewish people believe that the crucifixion of Jesus closes the door, slams the door to the possibility that Jesus was the Messiah. Because according to Deuteronomy 21-23, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed of God. So in the Jewish mindset, the fact that Jesus was crucified slams the door on any possibility that he's the Messiah, can't be the Messiah. I will never forget a conversation I had with a Jewish man as we were standing by the famous Western Wall at the base of the Temple Mount. I've relayed this story in the past. But he said to me, as we were talking about Jesus, I believe Jesus was a good rabbi. He was. He had some disciples from up in Galilee in the northern part of of the country here, and he was doing a good job with those disciples, and he decided to give them a big city experience in Jerusalem. But when he got here, it was just too much for him. It was overwhelming, and he ended up getting himself killed. And that's the way his life ended. 
That was his explanation. That's how he tried to explain away the crucifixion of Jesus and his claims to be the Messiah. Peter understood the mindset of the Jewish people. And that is why he makes it clear in this passage that the death of Jesus was planned in eternity past and came to fruition in time. And his death is the basis of our salvation and it is the means of our salvation. So Peter adds verse 21, he says, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter is basically saying this, because the death of Jesus was in the eternal plan of God, God raised him from the dead, and through the ascension, God returned Jesus to the glory that was his up at the right hand of the Father. To say it another way, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus was God's way of saying that the death of Jesus was a divine transaction, not a human accident. God, the Father, accepted Jesus' redemptive work for our sins, and he put his stamp of approval on the cross by raising Jesus from the dead and receiving him to glory. Beloved, don't allow... I urge you, don't allow your familiarity with this truth to rob you of what has been done for us. We have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. We have been redeemed from an empty life, an empty life of chasing a pipe dream for fulfillment, for meaning in life. We have been redeemed from this vain, empty manner of life that we received in our humanness. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. He is our only hope and means of salvation. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is our only hope of salvation. He is our only means of salvation. And how do we receive this salvation? Peter tells us right here in this verse. Right here in verse 21. In the first part of the verse, he talks about believing in God. He says, those who through him believe in God. And in the last phrase of the verse, he mentions your faith. The way we receive God's salvation is by faith. So I urge you to humble yourself before God. Repent of your sin. Let go of whatever is holding you back and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head and close your eyes in the last couple minutes that we have, making sure that you're focused so there are no distractions to your thinking, I want to ask you, have you received Jesus Christ by faith? You can do that right where you are seated, right there in the quietness of your own heart. Jesus once told a story about two men who went up to the temple to pray. And one was very arrogant, proud, conceited, said, I thank you, God, I'm not like these, this other, these other people. I don't do all these bad things. But the other man, Jesus said, 
The other man wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. In other words, he had his head bowed, his eyes closed. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he just hit his chest, smote his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. That man went home righteous before God. So I tell you again, right where you are seated, in the quietness of your own heart, with your head bowed, with your eyes closed, you don't even have to lift your eyes to heaven. You can say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Lord Jesus, cleanse me with your precious blood and make me new. You can do that this very moment. If you are a child of God, you know that without any doubt, then the question that screams at us from this passage is, how are you doing in life? How are you representing the Father, the Son? What is your conduct? What do people see when they look at your life? What kind of witness are you? You don't get a choice if you're a Christian. You don't get a choice as to whether or not you're a witness. It's just what kind of witness are you? Are you representing the Lord Jesus properly? Well, that's what this passage calls us to do. Father, as we close our time together this morning, I pray you would take the truth of your word, embed it deeply in our hearts, minds, and souls. And I pray, Father, that those of us who can call you Father because of your Son, Jesus Christ, and our faith in him, that we would represent him well, that we would conduct ourselves properly, knowing that there is a world of watching people all around us. And, Father, for anyone who is here in our midst who cannot call you Father because he or she doesn't know your Son, Jesus Christ, may your Holy Spirit draw that person, that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, May this be the day he or she says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. Cleanse me with your precious blood. We thank you, Father, for that blood which cleanses us from sin and makes us right before you. And we pray these things in his precious and matchless name. Amen.